Let us pray. Startle us, O God, with your truth. Open us to your love. Help us to love one another. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So good morning. I hope that you're enjoying the Labor Day weekend so far. For many of you, it may be a fairly normal weekend, but I imagine some of you have special plans with family or friends. Maybe you're going to a barbecue or planning to see the downtown fireworks. In today's scripture, Jesus goes to a party. And at that gathering, we are going to get a window into a side of him that we do not always see. This seemed like a a fitting story for today. The story takes place in the context of others in the Gospel of Luke. And so first I'm going to step back and mention where we were in last week's story before moving into this one. Last week I talked about a story where Jesus challenged the status quo by healing on the Sabbath. That happens in this week's story too. Sometimes Christians read these stories about the conflicts between Jesus and the synagogue leaders, and we forget that Jesus himself was Jewish. These are the first dangerous steps down the road to Christian anti-Semitism, and so I always try to be quick to point out that Jesus was Jewish, that he was an observant Jew, and he followed the law. And so I said last week that Jesus' actions in his story, when when he cures on the Sabbath, uh, these actions don't indicate a desire to get rid of the Sabbath or other Jewish laws. Rather, in that story, Jesus is trying to get us to move incrementally toward lives of greater love and greater compassion. Within the context of the law, he just wants us to be a bit more eager to risk and to try something new and to not be stuck with the things that we are used to. This week we continue with this story in Luke 14, the one Liz read to us this morning. Jesus heals again on the Sabbath in this story. This time the context is different. He's not in the synagogue. He's at a great feast in the home of a religious leader. And again, he's going to make a suggestion about choosing to live in a different way, but he's also going to meet people right where they are. He's going to make an incremental suggestion about how to live differently. This story happens, therefore, right in the middle of a less-than-perfect status quo kind of gathering. I love the first line of this story, the way that it starts. It says, On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. I'm not sure about you, but when I read that phrase, they were watching him closely, my knee-jerk reaction is to imagine 
that these onlookers are critical and suspicious of Jesus, and I choose not to like them. Of course, the text doesn't say that, and it could be different. It might be that they were watching him closely because they were intrigued with Jesus. They were engaged by his teaching. They wanted to learn something. And in this story, Jesus is going to deliver on that score. But only if we, too, watch him closely. Let me set the stage for a moment and talk about a little bit of history in Israel and Palestine of the ancient world. Jesus is invited in this story to the home of a leader of the Pharisees. He's in the home of a Jewish leader. In this story, the dinner table, the table they gather around, it's called in Greek a trapeza, which means that the guests would have been reclining around the table and enjoying the feast. You can probably imagine that image from pictures that you've seen or paintings in history books. uh, Additionally, they are participating in what is called in Greek a gamos, or a wedding feast. At this kind of a meal, guests were arranged around the tables by social position. Male guests were the ones who would have reclined on couches, and they were all arranged around a center couch, a place of honor, with all of the other guests being arranged in proximity to that center place of honor according to their importance, their wealth, their power, their office. So given all of that context, first of all, we know this. We talk a lot about Jesus spending time with the poor, the weak, and the powerless, and that is true. But in this story, he is definitely at a fancy party with fancy people. Additionally, we know that Jesus went to these kinds of gatherings at least frequently enough that according to a story back in Luke chapter 7, some people thought that Jesus was a glutton and a drunk. He was accused of this. And those accusations were leveled at him by his enemies and were probably false, but we at least know that he went to these kinds of feasts often enough for the accusation to make sense. So Jesus is at this fancy gathering, and the basic layout of the room is not much different than what most of us have witnessed at plenty of modern weddings. The wedding couple, whoever are the honored ones, the wedding couple sits at the head table. At a modern wedding, parents and grandparents and the wedding party are then closest to the head table, and much, much further away at the very back of the room, you often find very distant relatives or college friends who you think are likely to be overserved. And in between, we pay attention to other little social conventions. You pay attention to things like where you seat your boss or your mentor or your pastor. I've been seated next to lots of interesting people at weddings. We modern folks make these arrangements ahead of time, right? We expect an RSVP from everyone who is coming, but in the ancient world, things were different. Wedding feasts went on much longer, sometimes for days on end, and people might show up at any time along the way, and there were no seat assignments. You chose your own. 
Be that as it may, the same power arrangement was still in place back then. The more important people sat closer to the center. So if you were seated and someone more important than you arrived, the host might approach you and ask you to move. So that's the scene. Given that scene, I was very surprised at what happens next. This story gives such a different portrayal of Jesus than what we usually see. I spend a lot of time reading stories about Jesus. Many of you do the same. And if I had to guess what was going to happen next in this story when Jesus walks into this scene, I would say that he walks into the scene and he is angry. He thinks this whole arrangement is nonsense. All of us are God's children. All are equal in God's eyes. But everything about this situation assumes that some people are more important than others. So of course, Jesus is going to walk into the feast and flip over the tables, just like he does with the money changers in the temple. He's going to name this embarrassment to justice for exactly what it is. But not so. Remember, people are watching Jesus closely. People whose motivations we're not sure about. They may be enemies or they may be interested. But Jesus enters the feasts and he takes a look around and he says this so that people can hear. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Wow. Really? That's it? Jesus does not call this situation nonsense? He seems to accept it as a given. And not only that, but he offers a piece of advice to prevent people from being embarrassed in such a situation. Apparently, Jesus does not always object to the status quo, nor does he always go out of his way to change it. He seems to have some understanding that our firmly ingrained social conventions can be hard to break. Maybe some of them are even there for a reason. Perhaps, perhaps he also knows that it's not usually productive to be harshly critical to people you hardly know. But for whatever reason, in this situation, he's meeting people right where they are, and he's speaking their language. He's participating in their customs. And he offers a tip along the way about how to participate with humility. 
but he's not done yet. In verse 12, we read that the next thing Jesus does is that he goes and he makes another comment, a different comment, to the one who had invited him. This is that leader of the Pharisees. He's a religious authority, a person who has significant power and at least enough wealth to have thrown this party and to invite powerful people. We don't know much about this person. But one other thing we do know is that he invited Jesus. And so we can assume here that Jesus is now not speaking to strangers who were watching him closely. What Jesus is about to say now, he says to a friend, to someone he knows, someone with whom he's developed a relationship. And you can speak truth to a good friend. So imagine that Jesus walks over to his friend, the host of this feast, and to that friend he says these words in verse 12. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors because they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's what Jesus says quietly to his friend. This suggestion from Jesus may sound a bit judgy or ungracious, considering that Jesus is a guest in this man's home. But just like I'm not sure that the people watching Jesus closely were suspicious, I also wonder if maybe Jesus was speaking these challenging words to a friend because he's speaking the words in love. And I wonder this because it says clearly, if you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, Jesus says, you will be blessed. Jesus wants his friend to experience something good. I've been asked this question in a slightly different way, but basically the same question, and I'd like to ask it of you today, and I want to do this not at all in a preachy or holier-than-thou kind of a way, but as a friend. Because friends have asked this question of me, and I've found it to be a helpful challenge. You might even say I've found it to be a blessing. Who do you invite for dinner at your table, in your home? People have asked me this. More specifically, friends have asked me, how often do you have dinner in your home and invite people who are in some way quite different than you? 
the obvious differences and the, the contexts in which these questions are often asked have to do with different economic status or different race. But this challenge might apply to any number of differences. How about you? Who do you invite for dinner at your table? Have you invited someone who has a significant physical challenge or someone who openly struggles with mental illness? What about someone with dementia or Alzheimer's? If you occasionally have cocktails at your dinner parties, what about someone you know is in recovery? What about a different kind of gathering? What about someone who is grieving who, or who is just plain lonely and you know could use some company? Who do you invite to dinner at your table? Here's one. What about inviting someone you know favors a different political party without the intention of convincing them you're right over dinner? Okay, that was kind of preachy. But what about this one? What if you invited someone to dinner who lives on the west side of town? <laughs> Anna and I actually do that all the time because her whole family is from the west side. And I ended with that much less serious example because I think what Jesus is suggesting here, he suggests without being preachy. He suggests it as a friend. It's meant as a blessing. I don't do as well as I'd like dining with people who are much different than me, but when I do it at my home, in their home, out someplace even, though it's most meaningful in our homes, it's a blessing. It's always a bit of a challenge to go outside of my comfort zone, and I'm always glad that I did there's something special and intimacy about who we invite into our home and to sit at our table. And Jesus wants us to think about it. It's not a shaming. It's a blessing. It's an invitation not to be limited by the people we already know or the perspectives we usually hear, but to meet someone different not just for the sake of debating with them, but to invite them to be a part of your life and to grow because you know someone else who is a child of God. May God bless your feasting this weekend and all days. And may God bless the feast we have to share today. Amen.